Howdy do, howdy, howdy, howdy ho. Welcome to Are Your Parents Proud of You? I'm your host, Matthew Schufreiter, and I'm joined by... You're joined by uh, your editor, Jenna McCorkle. Hi, that's me. I am her, and she is me. Um, Matt, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you're going to be interviewing today? Well, Jenna, we have a really cool guest, David W. Burner. David uh, is an author of many books, such as Sandman, A Golf Tale, Rainbow Man, and Walks with Sam. He also hosts for WGN Radio, WBBM, on the weekends from 4 a.m. to noon, and has won countless awards for his broadcast journalism. David and I met over Zoom. So, ready to get into the heart of storytelling, Jenna? Hell yeah, let's do it. Hell yeah, here we go. David Berner, how are you? I'm very good, man. Nice to see you. Thank Appreciate you. To be Absolute, here. Too. Absolutely. Well, this is a uh, congratulations in order uh, first because you just finished uh, your time teaching at Columbia uh, this past right. spring. Yeah. And I have to know how does it feel not having anything to do? Well, obviously you have stuff to do, <laughs> but like you know, you're not prepping for a class or you're not seeing who's in the class or figuring out what to teach. You know, how is that going? Right. Yeah. Well, during the summer, obviously, it wasn't too unusual because it was a similar summer pattern, you know, um, a little bit of work, but not so much Columbia work. So it didn't feel that different. But, you know, when mid-August came around and everybody was running back to Columbia and I wasn't, uh, it, it did feel a little odd, I have to admit, because, you know, I've been doing this with Columbia for about 18 years. So it felt a little odd, but frankly, it feels also very good. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm really, you know, nothing against Columbia on this, but I'm just saying I'm I'm really glad to be where I am right now. Also, just because it just it feels like you're ready to just sort of take it a little bit slower, or just not have everything be on top of each other, you know? Yeah, um, you know, I've always had like a, you know, a lot of spoons in the soup, if you might, um, to coin a phrase, I guess. Um, I've always been that way. Um, I've always done a little of this and a little of that. Um, so that's not unusual for me. Um, but to be able to just, uh, for the most part, 75, 80% of the time to be able to just say, hmm, I don't think I'm going to do that today. I'm going to do this today. Uh, that's extremely liberating. Right. So that I'm enjoying. Well, you, you can do that. It just depends if that has consequences or not, you know, you know, <laughs> yeah, you can do that in any part of your life, but there are consequences. Now the consequences are much smaller now. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, if I don't do the dishes, I'll hear about it later. Stuff like that. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. My wife still has stuff for me to do. And you know, it's the honeydew list is still there from time to time, but um, generally it's a very liberating thing. Right. Um, uh, and, you know, I'm keeping busy though. I mean, I'm, I'm still doing some writing workshops. Um, you know, I have books out, I'm doing, uh, still doing radio work. Uh, so I have stuff to do. It's just that it's, uh, it's not as, uh, formalized, which is, you know, really nice. Speaking of radio. So I know this was the class you taught was about storytelling and, yeah. you know, and we'll get to your body of work later on but i'm kind of curious now you know what stories have your students 
inspired you to look at or work on, you know? I always think when we have a professor who has this great body of work or who's been doing this a little bit longer than, you know, his students, that everyone can bring something new to the table. So what do you think they brought you during your time? Wow, that's a really good question uh, because I, I really believe that a lot of times the learning doesn't come you know, from the top down, it comes from the bottom up, or it comes in a sideways way. Um, I sometimes it's—I believe sometimes it's good for the teacher or the instructor to get out of the way. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, many times in the storytelling class, I do get out of the way and I let the students kind of work within their own—not uh, individually, not alone, but with others in the group rather than because what happens is everybody defers to the teacher. It's like well, what do you think, Mr. Teacher? And then everybody just kind of, you know, runs like lemmings to what I have to say. And that really isn't the best way sometimes, many times. So uh, so your question is a good one. Um, I had a number of really compelling stories from students, things that were very personal, very put themselves in very vulnerable places. Um, and that that is one thing that reminded me how how good like personal storytelling can be when you open up, when you allow yourself to be vulnerable. I mean, there's no question that you can't you can't really do a good personal story, memoir or personal essay or anything like that without allowing yourself to be vulnerable. And that takes a lot of courage. Yeah. Um, and I think from a lot of my students to at times, you know, it didn't come naturally. Um, many it did because we live in a social media world where everybody's pumping their own stuff all the time, right? But it's usually the really good stuff, not the really difficult stuff. So it's a different door to open. And, um, you know, I, I, I think to answer your question, their work always reminded me of how important that is, how important it is to allow yourself to be vulnerable if you're going to tell personal stories. Because the reader or the listener, um, you know, it's a good filter. They're, you know. Um, Hemingway said that, you know, a writer has to be a 100 percent shit detector. Um, He has to be able to he or she has to be able to tell when something is bullshit. And I think a reader can pick it up if you're not fully telling the story or if you're shaping it in a way that makes it favorable or shaping it in a way that is not authentic. So um, the students reminded me of that a lot because they were very open to to open up their worlds which is really, really marvelous in a lot of ways, not just for my class, but for, you know, life itself. Mm -hmm. And at this point in your career, you know, like you said, you're an author, you've done radio, you've done done journalism, and you were a professor. How do you want to be identified now? Are you just an artist? Are you a storyteller? Um, How would you define yourself? Well, I know this is going to sound cliche, but uh, first of all, I'm a husband and a dad. To me, that's my first job, no matter what. Um, That's going to take precedent most of the time. But in terms of my work, I mean, I I learned a long time ago that, you know, the only way to describe what I do is I'm a storyteller. Now, sometimes that word gets misconstrued because you think of that person who goes to you know, that, that does a stand-up storytelling event at a storytelling, you know, venue or something like that. And, and I've done that kind of stuff from time to time, but I wouldn't call myself that. But I'm a storyteller in terms of everything that I do. I mean, 
my radio work, my journalism work, my memoir, my fiction, my music, whatever I'm working on, it's a form of storytelling. I mean, in some some way, shape or form. So if somebody had to put like, you know, if it was um, mandatory that somebody put a label on what I am in terms of career, uh, I would I would just call a storyteller. That That's probably what is the best description. It covers most everything. Right. Well, speaking of your story, let's talk about young David growing up in Pittsburgh. Uh, <laughs> tell me about this. I, I need to know what were you like as a child and then uh, what inspired you to write your first story, The Cyclops? Uh, <laughs> you've done your research. Yeah, my. Uh, the very first story, it was like, I don't know, third grade, fourth grade, something like that uh, was The Cyclops. <laughs> I actually still have that book. Yes, um, that's awesome. I wish I could find it. I'm gonna, I, I don't know if it's in this room. I don't think it's in this room, but it, it's uh, basically what we did. I'll, I'll answer your question here in a minute. But, um, you know, the Cyclops, uh, my teacher uh, at the time, uh, and I think it was third grade, we, we were told to write a story and then we were told to illustrate it in any way we wanted. And then we made paper mache. Uh, books like you know covers yeah and we put it all together so we actually made the book a physical book that you could hold in your hand and uh so it was really it was really cool i remember it very clearly um i still have the book because my mother kept the book not because i kept the book but um yeah and i said i gotta hold on to that so i don't know what I mean, I know what motivated me to tell that particular story. I don't know what motivated me to tell the story other than to complete the assignment, <laughs> you know. But the, at the time, I don't know if you know this, but do you, do you know Jacques Cousteau? Do you know yeah. that name? Yeah, the oceanographer, the famous oceanographer and scientist. At the time when I was growing up, uh, and, and, and you know, I don't know if there's a real good connection here because I was like in third grade when you're like, what, eight or something like that. So I don't know if there's a perfect symmetry here, but I was enamored by uh, Jacques Cousteau and the documentaries that ran in primetime at that time on you know regular networks at the time. Um, I was just fascinated by deep sea stuff. Um, and I don't know if that was like, you know, like kids who get into dinosaurs or whatever it is, a certain age, but I was really into that. And that obviously informed my story, the Cyclops, you know, because it's about this undersea monster. Um, so there was a lot of connection there. So I would say Jacques Cousteau kind of poked me into storytelling a little bit, if you want to find a, a culprit for it. Um, but me as a kid, I mean, I, I was just your average suburban working class kid. I mean, it really was. You know, I played baseball in the park and we used to play baseball in a cemetery, believe it or not. There's a cemetery that <laughs> I don't know what that says about me. Uh, <laughs> there was a cemetery. There was a cemetery across this little stretch of woods from my house. Right. And there was a section of the cemetery that was, you know, not there were no graves. Um, and we used to play there because it was the closest field to us. Um, and we used to get chased out of there all the time because the caretaker would come back, like, hey, kids, get out of here. <laughs> um, but my home run would be if we hit it into the gravestones. <laughs> so, yeah, if you hit it into the gravestones, that's a home run. But then there were some kids that were like freaked out by going over to the gravestones to retrieve the ball. So it was funny. So, you know, I had a very, very sort of, you know, my parents were great, wonderful, open, um, you know, uh, amazing when I look back at the time and the era. 
how completely liberating and open they were um, to how they shaped me. I mean, I it's 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 it was pretty forward thinking when I when I think about it now. My dad was also a very good storyteller. He was Irish, so as they say, it was in the tea. Um, but he 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 could just tell a great story, um, especially when he started to do voices. He would like do accents and stuff. And he, he just, when he was in his mode, man, he could, he was just wonderful. And my mother was a voracious reader. So I, I think that combination um, came together in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I got into, I, I was the band geek and the drama geek and stuff like that in school. So I was always into that sort of artistic storytelling performance oriented stuff um as a high school kid i had long hair i had hair number one then i had long <laughs> hair so uh yeah my hair was uh the envy of all the girls at school uh, i can say that now because you know they, they 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 you know it's unlikely they're gonna hear this podcast but it's you know it was shoulder length and you know i was a i was a just behind the hippie era but still in it to some extent when i was in school um and i was enamored by you know all the music of the time um you know i, I really was I, I felt that that was like the voice of a generation kind of stuff um and it was really important to me music was extremely important to me when i was growing up it was everything to me it was you know locking into my emotions locking into my storytelling locking into my you know my awakening as a as a man uh I, I i can't even tell you how important music was to me and still is in a lot of ways but certainly when i was a teenager right. you know i delivered newspapers you know i don't know there there really aren't newspaper boys anymore there are newspaper guys with a truck and they yeah right you know i i was the old newspaper kid with a sack on my side and you know carrying taking my dog along with me and that yeah, was very old school um but it gave me enough money to buy a guitar. It gave me enough money to buy, you know, a couple of things I wanted when I was a kid. And so, and I did that all the way through high school. That's cool. And I was going to ask you, because it sounded like radio played a big part in your life. Is it true that you would just spend most of your nights in your room just listening to the radio? Was I it, did that part. Yeah. Was yeah. it music or just broadcast journalism kind of stuff? Uh, it was It was both, actually. Um, I remember... You know, the old transistor radios. I'm really dating myself now. The old transistor radios I had. I think it was my dad's and he gave it to me. Uh, I would listen to ball games from, you know, like late at night. You'd get that. Uh, you'd get some of the AM stations that would travel through the sky, the, the sky path, they call it. And you could listen to stations from, you know, I was in Pittsburgh from Detroit and Canada and Philadelphia. I mean, they would come in clearly. I listened to baseball games. I listened to. You know, at the time, the personalities of the air who were very, um, you know, very entertaining uh, and the music, you know, um, I I was enamored by the voices coming out of the radio. I was I just thought that was the most magnificent thing. And then to be able to link that with your love of music, to listen to people who were encyclopedias of music and be able to talk about it with such, um, you know, such. Uh, weight and importance and uh finding the the meaning in all those great songs and and not only that but the you know talk about knew about the artists very well so that, that was really i loved that i wanted to be that guy you know um when i was a kid 
so yeah i would listen to the radio in you know like i mean it sounded like an old movie but it was very much this you know lying in bed with a transistor radio up against my ear yeah, i did that a lot that's awesome and then what point did you decide like i want to go some i want to be in this field of work was it during high school was it during was it even before that I think it was probably late middle school, early high school. I, I just kind of locked in, like, I want to be on the radio. I want to talk about music. And music was my thing. So I really wanted to be that person. I wanted to be that rock and roll disc jockey who knew everything about every song. Um, so I, I kind of locked myself into that. And even when I chose a college, uh, you know, I made sure they had a college radio station. I, you know, I was the first one in my family to go to college. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Um, but I knew they had a radio station and I knew that I could get on it, you know, that I just had to audition and learn the ropes. And, uh, that was important to me. Um, you got to audition like, like for what? Like just to be on the well, air? It was just so that you weren't going to be an idiot, you know, basically <laughs> they were just checking to make sure that you weren't going to be <laughs> or, you know, some terrorist to take over the radio station because that's the first thing they do when they have a coup, right? They take over right. the radio. Um, so um that's all it was so it was just to make sure you were a stand-up human uh and then you would go through training to learn a little bit of the mechanics um and uh, i eventually became the program director of that radio station and helped shape it help it move forward um you know i i didn't know what the hell i was doing but i was learning as i went and um i listened to the radio a lot i listened to what jocks did what you know air personalities did how they shaped their personalities what they said in the air why they said things on the air um i got an internship in radio um and uh, you know it just built from there but i i i don't remember considering much else uh doing that i was uh you know in high school i was in a band and then i was in a band through college that we played a lot of different places you know it was a lot of fun we were average as hell but it was it, it was fun. It was a, it was a great, great experience. And it was, you know, a lot of fun playing the, the rock star. <laughs> so like when you, you talk about your time doing radio, I'm getting flashbacks to when I studied radio uh, for 30 seconds at Columbia. I switched majors halfway through just because yeah. I minored in acting and forgot I liked it just a little bit more. And, yeah. I'm, and I'm getting like the flashback to that first day of orientation where they take all the radio students to the radio department and George Zarr, who we might mention a lot during this interview, who was my professor at the time, right. uh, he gave everyone just a little script and just said, all right, I want to see what you guys can do, whether you want to be on air or not. Mm. And for some reason, I fell into what well, I'm going to do a radio voice. Because everyone keeps telling me in high school, you have, a, you have a great voice. You have a good voice for radio. You should do that. And I never knew what that meant if I was actually doing like a voice or am I just yeah. talking about myself? And so I'm doing this like, well, hey, this was going around the country. Here's what's happening in your neck of the woods. And George was like, do you really talk like that? That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It took that one. That took time. That's one of the first things, you know, we in, in that program and the first thing that I learned, too. When I was in uh, started on radio, was uh, first of all, you have to be authentic. You have to be who you are, um, and people tend to fall into this what they think a radio announcer is supposed to sound like. 
even though nobody on the radio sounds like that anymore. No. You know, it's like, so where is that coming from? Well, it's coming from years and years of, you know, movies and television shows and, you know, all this sort of cliched thing about, you know, the radio announcer, that kind of thing. Right. Um, and I remember when I was first learning to figure this stuff out and I was on the radio station in college and my father uh, played golf every Saturday with a, uh, a, a radio host, a former radio host from Pittsburgh who was on the rock and roll station at the time. He, he wasn't doing that anymore, but he was a big deal at the time. Dave Scott, I remember the name very well, very radio name, right? Dave Scott. Dave Scott. Uh, so, uh, my dad said, Hey, you know, Dave would love to hear your, your tape, you know? And of course at that time it was cassette tapes, you know? So, um, I said, wow, that'd be cool. So I gave Dave my tape and a few days later he called me on the phone. And when I picked up the phone, I said, you know, Dave, thanks a lot for, you know, listening to that. And he says, you hear the way you're talking right now? Like right now, you mean like on the phone? Yeah. You hear the way you're talking? Yeah. He says, that's the way you need to talk on the radio just be you because i was doing that little bit of you know affected way right because in my head i thought that's what you're supposed to do so he was the first real teacher for me that really connected just and that was all he said just be authentic be yourself don't try to be the radio announcer that was a that was you know eye-opening to me that was very helpful i remember that very clearly i was probably 20 years old, 19 years old. I don't know if you listened to This American Life. With oh, that. yeah. I, and like Ira Glass has said multiple times, like, I don't have a, uh, a radio voice. Like, this no. is not the voice you want to hear. And you hear him, like, I mean, sure, his voice is a little nasally, but even with the bit of a stutter or you hear him, like, an, a couple ums here and there, like, he knows he doesn't have a good radio voice, but it's how authentic he is that he's presenting right. the story that's, like, it's still really engaging, even after, I think he's done it for 30 years now. Right. I think what's funny, though, about uh, Ira Glass right now is, though, he's become almost like a parody of himself. Like, when he says, act two. Yeah. How well, you know, he does this pause, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just like, so you, he could be, he could be imitated so easily and so you know mocked so because he has this cadence you know uh and that's something that's developed over the years if you hear him from the early time of americans american life he doesn't have that no but this now he has this sort of act two yeah act two how could you know when you walk down the street you know he's they sort of just cadence it's so ira glass oh my god oh that that I think that was the greatest Ira Glass impression I've seen in a while. Oh no no no! I've heard other ones that have been outstanding. They're <laughs> so good. <laughs> I no. thought I was a really good one. Oh, it's very funny. Oh, that's awesome. Like, like I I think the only like person with that good radio voice. I mean, it's I'm just a Chicago native, but like Pat Hughes when he does like Cubs broadcasting. Yeah. Classic broadcaster, yeah. Yeah, like yeah. one of the few people left who can still do the voice and it doesn't sound like a parody or uh, a no. joke at all. Like, it's just how he is. Right, he's the he's the play-by-play -play guy for the Cubs, for those who don't know. But he's, um, yeah, he, he's, a, he's a genuine pro. And, um, you know, he has a very traditional style. 
although he's suddenly humorous. I, I love his humor. He he is it's almost tongue in cheek. He's he's great. I, I think Pat Hughes is a gem. Yeah. Yeah. So you go to so you do you study in radio, you go to college and you get an internship. What was that post-college life like? Were you just doing the internship and then trying to find a job or what was going on then? Well, I, I got the internship. Uh, I was actually the first person to have an internship that got credit for it at my college ever. Uh, I I went to the radio station. I said, hey, you know, can I just hang around? And they're like, well, you know, maybe do an internship. And at the time, you know, internships now are very systemic and they've got all these rules. And back then it was like nobody gave a crap. You know, you just, yeah, call it an internship. Great. Um, you were probably breaking a million, you know, employment laws, you know, but it, it but you know, they said, sure, why don't you come and help us out? So I went to my advisor at my college. I said, hey, I got this thing in the summer. Is there any way I can get credit? And he looked at me, looked at me like I was out of my mind because no one had ever done that before. Uh, and I'm like, well, there's got to be a way. So it worked out. I got some credit for it. Uh, long story short, uh, that internship led to a part-time job at the radio station. And then that internship led to a full-time job at the radio station. So I mean, I used to tell students all the time at Columbia, and I think this is true um, almost everywhere at universities and colleges, get an internship. They open doors like, like nothing else. Um, so I think it's important to get an internship. It was important for me, and that was you know, 40 years ago. Yeah. So um, uh, that, that led me into that, and I got a full-time job. The thing that threw me off, though, you know, I told you my whole story about my rock and roll days and my long hair and listening to the Led Zeppelin and loving, you know, rock and roll and what that was all about and all the nuances of the artists and the meanings of songs. My first radio job was in country music. Uh, and country music at that time was very, very genre oriented. It was very Hank Williams. And, you know, it was not what it is today where there's a lot of crossover. Uh, it wasn't quite there yet. Uh, so I had to learn a lot about music I didn't know. And I'm glad I did because a lot of that stuff is, um, you know, there's a lot of influence from those people uh, into the rock and rollers. I mean, James Taylor talks all the time about the uh, one of the greatest songs ever written is a Hank Williams song. Um, and, you know, he there's a connection there that's really good. And I ended up liking, you know, country rock music, folk rock, you know, um, a lot. Poco, the Eagles, Crossy Souls and Nash, that kind of stuff um, was like my big deal. So there was a crossover there. And then I was around during the days of Urban Cowboy. I don't even remember if anybody remembers this, but the movie Urban Cowboy was gigantic movie. It was like the Titanic of its day. Um, it was very, very big and it changed the way people looked at country music. Uh, and then there, there became a lot of crossovers and you got Kenny Rogers, Crystal Gale and all those names that even if you're not a country person, you got you you know, right? Um, and I was in the middle of that when when country was growing like crazy, uh, so it was really cool to be involved with that, uh, to watch it grow and to be a part of that. And then one day, I had a program director say to me, "Yeah, you know, I had been doing music on the air," and he said to me, uh, "You want to be the news guy in the morning show?" I'm like, what? Instead of taking one news class, you know, in college, I. I he said, ah, you know, they just need somebody to read the news and, you know, banter with them a little bit. I think you'd be good at it. So I jumped into that job, not knowing what the hell I was doing. But my program director apparently saw enough in me that he believed that there was 
something there that, you know, that would work. And I kind of learned journalism, you know, you know, uh, you know, under the gun um, in a lot of ways. But I found out that that was part of my storytelling, that that was really interesting to me. And I and I was always, you know, interested in what was going on in the world. So it wasn't like it was out of the blue or strange. But I did have to learn the tenets of journalism, kind of like on the fly. Um, and I did. I ended up, you know, being a news director and a program director for a talk radio station. And, you know, I went down an avenue that I didn't expect. Um, but it, but it was it was right. It was the right one. Yeah. It was. And at this point, you know, how do your parents were viewing you? Were, you, were they were generally like impressed with what you're doing? Did they think like, wow, we didn't expect this from you? Uh, what were they feeling about you? I, I my mother always thought I could be, you know, whatever I wanted to be. Uh, and, and to a fault, my mother was always like, David, you're the greatest. You'll always be the greatest. You'll be so good. You're the greatest, you know. And I think that probably messed me up therapy wise along the way because I thought I was always the greatest, you know, not in an egotistical way. But I never thought I could do something wrong because my mother always told me I was so good. Right. Um, nothing against you, mom. It's OK. Uh, you were a great mom. And my dad was just enamored that I was on the radio. <coughs> he just thought that was, you know, an amazing thing. Um, and I remember when I had my first job on the air, I did a lot of stuff off the air at first internship, but when I was actually on the air, my parents, I was getting ready to go to drive to the radio station and my parents had a Western Union telegram delivered to my door that said, congratulations on your first on-air job on a radio station, love mom and dad. I still have that. Uh, I get I get a little emotional thinking about it. It was so, it was just so, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, that was my parents. Um, my dad even did a little work at the radio station. He was a carpenter by trade and he actually, they wanted to build something in the studio. And I said, I think my dad can do that. My dad came in. My dad thought that was the greatest thing in the world, you know, to come into the radio studio and do some work. So, so as far as my parents were concerned, they were very supportive, always very supportive. Uh, they never questioned it. They never, they, you know, when I think about this, it's just amazing. They never said to me, what the hell are you doing? When are you going to get a real job? They never said that to me ever. I mean, for that generation, for the 60s and 70s, for a parent not to say that, to seem really, when I think about that, that's really forward thinking. That's really kind of out of the box for that time. Do you bring that forward thinking now with your kids, with your students? Yeah, I, I, I think I do. I hope I do. I think I've done that with my kids. Um, I always told them that, you know, I will support what you want to do. Um, and, you know, um, but it's your work. I mean, you, it's your life. You've got to figure that out. Um, you know, I'll give you advice if you want it. Um, sometimes they give advice when they didn't want it. But um, they both have found, I think they both found where they want to be. Um, I think that will evolve. I mean, I didn't write, start writing books until I was in my 40s. Yeah. So, you know, who knows what they're going to do 20 years from now, right? Yeah. And I think you should keep that open. I think people should be be uh, open to that um keeps your keeps your heart going keeps your mind going keeps your life interesting you know i can't imagine you know some of the people i grew up with in pittsburgh were steel workers all their lives from the time they left high school till they were 60 and uh, they punched the clock and went in and worked with the 
you know, the, the belly of the beast in the steel mills all their lives. And I'm like, okay, if you're happy with that, fine. I can't imagine that. Yeah. Can't imagine doing that for, you know, 50 years. For sure. That's awesome. Well, we do have some time left. Uh, we're going to play this wonderful game that I think you're going to love called Time for Two. Two minutes okay. to talk. Two uh, minutes of random icebreaker questions. No right, no wrong. Just curious to see what your opinion is. Are okay. you ready? I'm ready. Here we go. Three, two, one, go. Coffee or tea? Coffee. What part of the human face is your favorite? Eyes. Karaoke song of choice. Ooh, uh, it's probably something really cliche, like uh, a Journey song or something like that. Yeah, probably, even though I hate Journey, but it's so cliche. So I hate Journey, by the way. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> what topping should not be on a pizza? Oh, pineapple. Never. Uh, <laughs> how do you like your eggs? Oh, uh, many ways, but I'm a big omelet guy. The best part of waking up is? Folgers in your cup. Uh, that old commercial. Uh, it smell of coffee. Smell of coffee. Or, 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 or even better, turning to my side and seeing my wife there. There that's, you go. That's really, those two things go together. <laughs> oh, uh, what chore do you absolutely hate doing? What chore do I hate doing? Oh, my God. Uh, picking up the dog uh, waste in the yard. <laughs> Not a fan, but I do it. <laughs> Toilet paper, over or under? Oh, geez. That does I don't care. I, I really don't care. <laughs> uh, uh, which West Wing character is your favorite? Oh, man. Uh, probably the president, Martin Sheen's character. I love Martin Sheen. I got a chance to meet him, too. He is the nicest man in the freaking world. He's a great guy. Yeah, very, very genuine. That's awesome. Favorite movie genre? Oh, I don't know if I have a genre. I mean, I like old Humphrey Bogart movies, you know? Yeah. I don't know what to call those. Uh, maybe film noir sometimes, but I don't know if I have a genre. I like narrative stories. I like full-fledged narratives. I, I'm not a big sci-fi guy. I'm not. I, that's the, That stuff doesn't interest me. But uh, good narrative stories, yeah. And that's how we play time for two. Excellent. That was fun. Yeah. So, David, before we go, my last question to you is, are your parents proud of you? Uh, yeah, I think they are or were. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I think they were. Yeah. I that's agree. a good thing, good thing to think of. Yeah. I agree. I, I can't thank you, David, for coming on. I've had a lot of fun getting to know you and talking with you. And, yeah, this was a lot of fun to get to know you. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. It went very fast. It was a lot of fun to talk to you, Matt. Thank you, David, for coming on and spending some time to chat with me. It was a lot of fun getting to know him. And we like anyone who taught at Columbia. Yeah, I, we love Columbia people. It's, it's where we met Live each other. what we love. Oh, yeah, that was the school motto, I guess. Wait, was it? Was that the official school motto? I don't even know. I feel like I should know this. I did go there for four years. I don't remember. Okay, well. <laughs> been... uh, in any case, th thanks for being with us today. Uh, check out our socials, uh, Facebook and Instagram at Parents Proud Podcast. Um, but more importantly, uh, I would like to take a minute to talk to you all about there about um, our emails. Now, listen, last week I may have 
made a rather bold statement about quitting the show if we did not receive a picture of a horse. Um, yeah. Well, uh, guess what? I, well, guess what? Um, I have not checked the email, so I don't know if we received a picture of a horse or not. Um, stay tuned. If we do not see, I will check it before the next episode. So uh, we'll just go ahead and see. Uh, and uh, if there's not a horse, uh, you know, we may be uh, noticeably missing an editor next episode. <laughs> um which is a shame because I, I just took on a, an additional job at uh, Are Your Parents Proud of You as well. I am yep. now our official lamppost. I uh, I give off light. I, uh, I I light up a room in in the dark, not in like a not not in like a you know like a emotional metaphor way. Like oh, she lights up the room. No, no. I mean, I literally provide a source of of light. Like, we give you a light bulb and just light appears. Yeah, yeah. Actually, what happens is I just, like, open up my mouth and just, like, beams of light come out. Um, it's it's somewhat concerning. Like, I, it's kind of debating whether or not I should see a doctor about it because, like... Well, you were the Pez dispenser one week, so at this point... Yeah, and you know what? I never ended up seeing a doctor about that, and it just kind of went away on its own, so... Maybe we're fine. Yeah, who knows? Um, yeah. So cool. thanks for joining us on uh, Are Your Parents Proud of You? Uh, are we announcing next week's guest? Yeah, next week we have uh, actor Rachel Livingston. Cool. I can't wait. Rad Gravity. Rad Gravity. That's Rad Gravity. That's All right, uh, folks. Bye. Uh, goodbye. I... Yeah, thank you for saying bye this time, Matt. We all know what happened last episode. Bye, everybody. Bye.